the National Archives podcast series. Digitising MH47, the Middlesex Military Service Appeal Tribunal, presented by Chris Barnes and David Langrish, as part of the National Archives Diversity Week. This talk was recorded on the 30th of January 2014 at the National Archives, Q. My name's David Langrish, it's my colleague Chris Barnes. We're here to talk about the papers of the Middlesex Military Service Tribunal, which heard appeals for exemption from conscription between 1916 and 1918. Uh, this collection of records in the record series MH47 have been digitised, the completion of a recent project run by ourselves, the Friends of the National Archives and the Federation of Family History Societies, who provided funding for the project. So we'd like to thank them at this moment for their support throughout the project. The records went live last Wednesday via our online catalogue discovery and they're free to download, so there's no charge to download these records. What we'll do during the talk, just run through a quick introduction to conscription, how it came to be passed into British law. We'll look at a quick introduction to the tribunal system, why we digitise the collection and how now to search that collection on our online resources. We'll look at a few case studies from the collection, and look at the different case, types of cases that were heard by the Appeal Tribunal. That'll lead us into some of the diversity topics and other themes covered within the collection, and then we'll finish with a few summary points at the end. So to understand conscription, we need to go back to 1915. As 1914 turned into 1915, it was coming more apparent that the war was going to be a prolonged conflict, so not only would that require more men for a larger army, it also require more industrial output to not only supply that army but also to make sure that society at home was kept fed and, and kept protected. July 1915 saw the National Registration Bill passed and that was followed by the National Register in August 1915. That was the first attempt by the British government to measure British manpower potential. It, it was like a census. It asked people, age, women, uh, men and women, aged 16 to 65, to give details of their current employment status and any other skills or experience that they'd been trained in. From that, what followed was the lowest number of returns in September via voluntary recruitment for the army. The army had always been recruited by voluntary means, and so the call for sort of compulsion started to get louder. Lord Derby was appointed to Director General of Recruiting in October 1915. He launched what was now known as the Derby Scheme, a recruitment scheme, again, based on voluntary sort of methods. It asked men identified by the National Register who were of military age to attest their willingness to serve now or when called upon in the future. The scheme failed to attract the numbers it hoped. Uh, we'll go through those in a second. And so compulsion or conscription uh, became unavoidable. 27th of January 1916, the first Military Service Act was passed. This enforced conscription on British society for the first time. Single men and widowers without dependents aged 18 to 41 were now liable for army service as long as they weren't in a starred occupation, so work of national importance. In May 1916 it was extended to married men and then in 1918 it was extended up to the age of 51 and there was also legislation to extend it to Ireland which was never enforced because of the political situation. Going back to the stats of the National Register in 1915 it found basically that there was one and a half million men, uh, single men, who were available for military service. 2,179,000 were single 
690,000 of those were in a style occupation, so that brought it, brought it down to one and a half million men. And then in the Derby scheme, which was targeting those men, it found that only a million of the 2.1 million single men identified by the National Register did attest their willingness. Only 651,000 were not in a style occupation. And when Derby made allowances for those who were unfit on medical grounds, he predicted only 344,000 or 343,000 men were immediately available through his scheme and so that's why conscription came in. Just because conscription had come into force it didn't mean that there was no grounds for appeal and we were still in a reasonable society even though it was one that was at war. So you could appeal on seven different grounds. Basically A, B and C are to do with either your work or your study being of national importance. Ground D is the most common ground of appeal that you'll find in our records. That's domestic hardship. That's either that your family obligations, that you've got a young family to look after, or you're a widower, or you've got uh, invalid parents, or that you've got business interests, which means that you can't go up and serve. Like your business, your one-man business, and it's the only sole source of income for your family. Ground E, you could appeal on the grounds of ill health or infirmity. We've got a case papers of about 1,100 men who were appealing on grounds of ill health. G were the reserved occupations, and then F is the well-known conscientious clause. So what you would actually do if you wanted to appeal against your conscription was, first of all, you'd have to appeal to a local tribunal. Every borough would have a local tribunal. So you would go and you would stand in front of a panel and state your case, giving evidence as needed. If your appeal was dismissed by the local tribunal, or if you didn't get the exemption that you were looking for, for example, you were asking for an absolute exemption, but you only got a temporary exemption. You then had a right to appeal to the county level appeal tribunal. And those are the records that we have in MH47. They're the records for Middlesex of the county appeal tribunal. So they've already gone through one stage at the local tribunal. Then, again, if your appeal was dismissed at county level, there was recourse to appeal at the central tribunal, which was the final court of appeal, met at the Guildhall in London. We don't have case papers of the central tribunal, but we do have minute books and letter books, which you can see uh, lists of all the cases that were heard at the tribunal. After the war, it was announced that because of the sensitivity around uh, conscription and also conscientious objection, that the majority of the case papers should be destroyed, leaving only Middlesex as a sample for England and Wales, which is how we've ended up with them. And then there's a sample set for Peebles and Lothian, which are a sample set for Scotland, which you can find at the National Records for Scotland, the Scottish Archives. Some fragments do survive in local archives. Some things were, you know, escaped the call by good luck or because of diligent archivists around the country. We're actually running a survey with the help of the Federation of Family History Societies to survey local archives and actually find out what does survive. And it's quite surprising the amount of local registers, samples of case papers, letter books that do survive around the country. So hopefully when that's complete, we'll be able to put that online or do something really good with it. In terms of what actually we found in the records, it was actually quite surprising. One of the misconceptions before we started the records was that if you appealed, the probability was that you would get some form of exemption. But you can see on the slide here that of the 11,307 case papers, which relate to... 8,791 individuals, only 26 received an absolute exemption. The majority there, you can see there's 4,012, so just about half, 
of the appellants had their appeals dismissed, so would then have to go on immediately to see some sort of war service, if not serving in the armed forces, doing work of national importance. 2,813 received only a temporary exemption. That was usually only one, two or three months, usually to get their affairs in order, find somebody to run their business before they then would also be called up. The conditional exemptions, 581 of those, you would have got a rolling temporary exemption, which would be on the condition that you fulfil some sort of war service. So you would have to do the work that you normally did, looked after the family that you normally looked after, but complete, say... 15, 20 hours a week working in a munitions factory or becoming a special constable or attending drill so that if you were called up, you would know how to handle a weapon. 577 people applied as conscientious objectors. That's 5% of the total case papers and 6.5% of the total appellants. Again, quite surprising. You would have thought that it, it would be much higher than that. But like I said earlier, the vast majority appealed on the ground of domestic hardship as people looking after a family or looking after a business. Because the, the temp- at the end of your temporary exemption, you could appeal again. And same with your conditional exemptions. You would have to give evidence that you'd been meeting the conditions of your exemption, then it would be extended again. And 1,001 of these appeals were still active. Either you, there was still time on your temporary exemption or you were in the process of reapplying when the armistice came into effect. So 1,001 lucky individuals never made it into the armed forces. So why did we digitise the collection? Well, the simple answer was it was a really horrible series to use as a a researcher uh, here at the National Archives. Readers would start with a card index, alphabetical, by surname of the applicant or the appellant. What you would then be looking for is the case paper number and register number. And in the case there of Edmund Darville, you'll see that there's two entries on his card. As appellants could appeal more than once, so they'd be going throughout the period 1916 to 18, you might see subsequent appeals. You'd be looking to take the most recent appeal, so the most recent case paper number, 2892 in this case, and register 14. So that would take 45 minutes to 50 minutes to be delivered to the document reading room. And then you would order up the register. These are listed by case paper number. They give a pre-say, really, of each case. So again, you'd order up one of these registers. That would take another 45 to 50 minutes to come down to the document reading room. And what it would tell you, as in the case of Edmund Darville here, is the case paper number, where the local tribunal had been heard, or where the local application had been heard, the name, address, occupation, which in this case is property or off-licence store, so certainly work of national importance. The grounds of appeal, D, there in the middle, so that would then correspond with the list that Chris has just talked through, so this would be on domestic grounds. And then importantly, and why you needed to use the registers to then try and find the case paper, is the decision of the appeal tribunal, which is in this case was an exemption. The reason why that is so crucial is that the case papers weren't filed by alphabetically by applicant they were filed by the decision of the tribunal so once you've determined the decision you would then go back to our online catalog or paper catalog to try and find the piece number as you can see there as i zoomed in um, broken down by so decision type so his was an exemption and then you're looking for the case paper number range that the case would then be within so it was 2892 so we know it's piece 54 you then order up piece 54 so another 45, 50 minutes. The problem we found when we started the project is that some of the filing had been a bit off. So it might say 2892, but it might actually be in 
piece 55, so that might then be another 45, 50 minutes. So it's a name-rich source, quite a unique series that was very underused. So we felt it was prime for being opened up in some capacity and through the funding of the Friends of the National Archives and Federation of Family History Societies, we were able then to start work on digitising the collection to make it name searchable. The actual case papers themselves will have the application to the local tribunal. It will give you name, address, occupation on the front. On the back it will give you details of why they are applying for exemption and then it will give the decision of the local tribunal. Attached more prominently in front of that will be the notice of appeal form to the appeal tribunal. So again, name, address, occupation at the front. This time you get the grounds of appeal statement, so a personal statement from the applicant as to why they're seeking exemption. So that's your first insight into how conscription is impacting upon individuals, upon families, households, local communities, even businesses. Now it could be the applicant themselves, a family member, their employer or the military representative on behalf of the army that makes that appeal and that will be stated just at the bottom of the front of the appeal form. On the back you will get the summer, a more detailed summary by the local tribunal as to why they came to their decision and then you get the final decision of the appeal tribunal in shorthand form. That is then confirmed in a notice of decision form. It will just A copy would have been sent to the applicant and a copy kept on a file and it will just say whether the case has been dismissed or in this case for Mr Darville that an exemption is granted and then listing those conditions as Chris was saying a moment ago of what he has to sort of abide to. So it was, I think it was 30 hours a week in the munitions industry on top of his own business interests. So it shows you some of the extra responsibilities applicants who got an exemption were expected to take on to help the wider war effort. As well as the personal statements on those forms, it's the pieces of evidence attached to them if they survive that again also provide extra insights into how the war is Im impacting upon society and on local communities. Here we have an example taken from Mr Darville's case of a letter from the munitions industry employer that he was now working for, building, I think it's three-inch stoke bombs. Again, that would be interesting to, to family historians, might then be able to find out some extra employment backgrounds on the people they're researching. You might get newspaper cuttings either of that specific case or of similar cases held locally or elsewhere around the country that people are using to support their claim. And you'll get various letters and personal statements attached to the case papers, mainly in support of applicants, but in this case we have a letter that was attached to a case paper of Mr Busby and it's signed by an anonymous author, just signed SH&M, and he actually describes Mr Busby as a rotten shirker. So you begin to see not only some of the tensions created between government and society as a result of conscription, but also some of the divisions within local communities as some members of that community might feel that they've given a bit more to the war effort than other members of the community. In this specific case here, anonymous author of a letter had lost his two sons during the fighting and was of the opinion that Mr Busby was avoiding military service. Mr Busby went on to see service in the Royal Air Force after his appeal was dismissed. Yeah, so that was then and this is, this is what we've come up to now. A lot simpler now that the records have been digitised and itemised. You'll find this online form on our online records page. You see we've got four search fields that you can uh, fill in. Obviously first and last name, but then you can also search by occupation and place of residence. The easiest way to search is by name search, because like the census, we're sort of relying on what the people have put down. 
Like, for example, if you know for a fact that your great-grandfather was a farmer and you put in John Smith farmer, but he's put down on the form John Smith pig breeder, you're going to get no results, even though you know it's there. So the easiest way to search, put in a name, and hopefully you'll get the right paper. Short, pressy, it'll confirm name, address, occupation, and the grounds of appeal, which you can then click the title there and download the individual case paper. So really good, really easy for family historians. You're looking at two minutes now instead of two hours. So it's, it's a lot more helpful, and obviously you can do this from home without having to come into the archives. What the records are also really good for, not just for family historians, but also for academic researchers, because you can do a lot of keyword searching now that you weren't able to do before. If you go into the advanced function of discovery, you can search, as we've shown the example here, just by the grounds of appeal. So if you're looking for anybody who was a conscientious objector, you can put in conscientious as a keyword, search within MH47, and it'll return all all items in the record series that are to do either with people who applied as a conscientious objector or correspondence to do with conscientious objectors as well. You can change your keyword terms, search for anybody who applied on ill health, anybody who applied who was a particular occupation, so you could search for everybody who was a farmer, or you could search by anybody who came from a specific place. For example, if you're interested in the local history of Tottenham, you can search for everyone who's, who's applied from that particular district. You can then download the results that you get into a spreadsheet, which then you can play around with. So, for example, you could pick out everybody from this spreadsheet who was a conscientious objector from a specific place, Ealing, Tottenham, etc., and then see if there's anybody from your street, see how they're grouped together, and then have a look, again, conscientious objectors by age, conscientious objectors by district, play around with it as you, as you would like. So now we've gone through the actual structure of the records, we'll go on to a few case studies and show you a, a few personal stories, a few different personal stories, domestic, medical, etc. You know, the different types of information that you'll start to be able to pull out. On the screen here, we've got the Baggs family from Stanwell. There's uh, William there and Anne with their four sons. You can see he's listed there as a pig breeder and his four sons are helping with the business. At the start of the war, Ernest, the eldest, joins up, leaving three sons left at home. Obviously, three sons, all similar age, all military age. One of them is bound to be called up. Alfred, who's the next one, does get called up. And you'll find his case paper there in MH4712. And what the tribunal say in his case is that ordinarily, because Alfred was married, they would have passed him over and taken David, who was the youngest son, because he was single. You might not be able to make it out there, but it says Alfred was so abusive and unhelpful to the tribunal that they actually said, you know what, we are going to call you up. At the bottom, there's a little note, which you won't be able to read. It's in pencil there. It says that Alfred wrote a letter apologising for his conduct, saying he's terribly sorry, he didn't mean to be abusive. And the tribunal write back to him and say, look, it doesn't matter who goes, one of you has to go. So Alfred kind of heroically says, even though I'm married, I don't want my younger brothers to go and serve. I'm going to go. So he goes to France knowing that he's gone to serve and his two brothers are, are safe at home. Two years later, David does receive his call-up papers. In the interim, the third brother, George, he's also called up. So David's the only brother left at home. In David's case papers in MH4760, 
there's a letter from Alfred from the front saying, hang on a minute, two years ago you said if I went to France my brother would be safe and now you're telling me that he has got to go and sign up. So if you couldn't find service record for Alfred, you've got here that he's in the Royal Engineers, you've got his service number and you know that he's serving in France. So that's a really, really good, useful piece of information. Unfortunately for the Baggs family, the story doesn't end too well for them. The father, William, so distraught at the prospect of losing his fourth son to the war, commits suicide. That's in the, in the interval between appealing to the local tribunal and his case being heard at Middlesex. He goes in and drowns, and there's a newspaper clipping which they give in support, and also the captain of the volunteer training corps that David has been drilling with writes a letter in support as well. You can see on the letter written by the captain of the volunteer training corps that it's dated September of 1918, if he'd only hung on for a few more months, he would have seen all of his family back because all three brothers who were serving survive. They're terribly, terribly sad. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, we've got records of 1,100 men who applied on the grounds of ill health or infirmity put into these three pieces, MH47, 114, 115 and 116. When conscription came into force, everybody who was appealing got a medical exam and they would take place under the control of the military it quickly became clear that the military doctors under pressure to replenish frontline forces were passing hundreds of men who were unfit for service there's a case paper here William Edwards in box MH4730 in his appeal of January 1917 he submits a certificate from his surgeon saying that he's got a deformed left ankle and it's the surgeon's opinion that he won't make an efficient soldier. Despite this evidence, his appeal is dismissed and he's called up for service. I actually found a service record for him, which is in WO364, which I found on Ancestry. You can see that the uh, date he enlisted was the 15th of May, 1917. He's discharged in September of 17, physically unfit because of a weak left ankle, the same left ankle that his surgeon advised in his evidence. There were hundreds and hundreds of these types of complaints. So medical exams were taken out of control of the military and given to civilian doctors, which led to this flood of applications for reassessment. They would be put into four categories. This was an instruction given to the medical tribunals by the local government board. Basically, it was grade one was fit for service. Grade two is not quite fit for service, but is likely to become fit if they get a bit of training. Number three was basically that you weren't fit to fight, but you could do some other work in the army. You could either be a clerk or a cook or a porter or something like that. And grade four is completely unfit for service. What they were also really scared of was tuberculosis. Everybody that got on a medical examination also got a tuberculosis exam because they didn't want anybody going to France who could spread TB. This is another instruction saying that if anybody was found to have TB, they would get an instant six-month exemption to go away, get fit again, and then come back for reassessment. I've uh, had a little bit of looking at these records. It's quite interesting that the majority, 68.5% of the people who applied for reassessment, were at the older age of the spectrum, between 40 and 50 years old. Over half had their grading lowered on reassessment. So if they were grade one before, they might go down to grade two or grade three, which just goes to show how poor the initial assessments have been by the military doctors. But 11 of the poor people from box 115, actually, when they 
went for reassessment, they were found to be fitter than they were and actually had their grading bumped up. So you, know, you can't have it both ways. 54 of the people were assessed as grade 4, completely unfit for service. Now, the only problem with these people is we don't know then if they went on to perform some work of national importance, which you have to presume that they were. And just interesting that of those 54 who were rejected as unfit for service, 17 had previously been passed grade 1. There were a lot of complaints, some really, really bizarre. There was one person who was completely blind in one eye but wasn't given a sight exam. So when he, he appealed, he said, I'm, I'm blind in my right eye, but I wasn't given a sight test. I just got my heart listened to two minutes in and out, didn't ask any questions. They had a look at him. Oh, yeah, you're right. Sorry, you can't serve. So as we mentioned earlier on, we also have the sensitive topic of conscientious objection within the series. We've provided the example here of Arthur Frank Walling, who was obviously appealing on conscientious grounds. It goes to show the sort of extreme penalties facing conscientious objectors having had their appeals dismissed. The local and appeal tribunals found that Arthur Frank Walling could only have an exemption from combatant service, so he would still need to join the army, but he'd be posted to the non-combatant corps. Now, it was quite a regular outcome for uh, conscientious objection cases. Chillingly, attached to his appeal form is a letter, and just towards the top, he says, I am prepared to make any sacrifice in trying to obtain an exemption. So what he was basically trying to say is that he'd be willing to give up his job and take on a different type of role, be willing to give up his house potentially just to stand by his own moral beliefs. But what actually happened was that Arthur Walling was a number of conscientious objectors who actually disobeyed military orders when posted to the non-combatant corps. And in the court martial registers WO213-9, we get the following entries. And all of the men from the top down to the middle there and about five or six others on the previous page of all conscientious objectors post-non-combatant corps. They were all charged with disobedience and they were all sentenced to death for that disobedience. That, what would happen when a death sentence was passed, it would then be immediately reviewed up the sort of chain of command and they were all commuted to 10 years penal servitude because of the sensitive impact that would have had. In a quite a different type of case, but similar in highlighting the sort of extreme penalties facing people who wanted their own moral beliefs. We had in the case of Charles Cunningham, who was given an exemption by the Middlesex Appeal Tribunal as long as he stayed in his current work, which was with the London County Council. A month later, attached to his case papers, a letter from the London County Council suspending him without pay because he was a conscientious objector. So again, you see some of those divisions and penalties that people faced, and you'll find in collections such as the Appeal War Museum, for example, many sort of recorded interviews or diaries of conscientious objectors who spent time in prison during the First World War. In contrast, and an important point we're trying to make about the collection, is the case of George Frederick James. And in this case, it was his father, Thomas Charles James, who was making the appeal on his behalf. Basically, George's two brothers had been called up to serve, so Thomas was the only remaining son left to provide for the family, which included two young children... I can only assume of his brothers to sort of provide for them and financially provide for them and, and help take care of them. The military representative made a statement to say that he believed that no serious hardship would affect the family if George was called up, and so the appeal was dismissed. And so the important point we're trying to make is that in you know most of these cases, people were seeking exemption, 
but they were willing to fight. It wasn't that they were unwilling to fight, they refused to fight. In the majority of cases, they were willing to fight, and they did go on to fight. And in the case of George Frederick James, we couldn't find a service record on ancestry, but unfortunately we could find an entry on the Commonwealth War Graves Commission website. And then, luckily for us, that confirms a battalion he was posted to, 6th Battalion, Royal West Surrey Regiment, and the date of death. So we can then move on to the unit war diary, another collection that we're starting to make available online. And it confirms to us that on the 4th of April, in two separate incidences, 10 other ranks were killed by enemy shelling. So it just goes to show, firstly, how you can move between records, having used this collection, but also, you know, importantly, that although this deals with people who were seeking exemption from military service, it doesn't mean that they were refusing to fight or unwilling to fight. The collection also reveals some of the changing roles and changing ways of society. And an example here found by the project manager Kate Jarman is the changing role of women. In this case for Samuel Harridge, he points out that he's needed at home to provide for his mother and sister with his other brother already in the army. So again, an appeal on domestic grounds. Attached to his case paper is a letter from the military representative and he states that the financial hardship could be avoided if his sister left school and took on employment. So it goes to show how these case papers don't just focus on the applicant, they reveal stuff about their family, about the household, about their wider family, about the local community or local businesses or employers. We also have in piece 142, which you can browse images, a booklet which was submitted to the tribunals and military representatives called Women's War Work. And again, it highlights the changing role of women in society at this time and the extra work they were taking on. Basically, the government was pushing a substitution policy whereby women could come into different industries and jobs to allow men to then be freed up to join the army. And the booklet lists all the different trades and jobs that women were now being employed in, uh, so they, the tribunals could use this as they were hearing different cases. And it includes all munitions work as well. And it also included all these photographs, and there's, you know, there's probably 30 or 40 of these photographs of the women carrying out the new jobs that they were being employed in. So we've got sort of heavy machinery work, munitions work and even there working in sort of shipyards as well. So it's very interesting insight into how the war is impacting wider society, not just focused on sort of Middlesex. There's other quite candid detail about the health of other people's families. Not only were people applying because of their own ill health or infirmity, but domestic grounds quite often meant that they had somebody at home who they needed to, to take care of. In this example, Alfred Moss, the application is actually made by his mother and he's she details that there's actually a history of depression and suicide in his family in that his his brother had been killed a few years earlier by suicide so she was concerned that if her other son went to the war that the same fate would would befall him the details in this instance harry george cordley he's having to take care of a paralyzed parent his he describes his mother as a widow who's also a cripple, right leg paralysed, saying that he couldn't possibly leave her by herself. Harry Dale also, it's quite candid information that his wife died three years ago, leaving him with a daughter who has bizarrely described as having an epileptic brain. But it just shows that you had to be quite candid. This will be your only chance 
to gain an exemption. So you had to be candid about the, the level of detail that you included in the forms. So you can get quite a lot of information about the domestic situation, the health of Middlesex at the time. Another part of the collection, which is quite useful for us, are records of people who weren't British. There was kind of an agreement in place that nationals of other belligerent nations should go back to the countries that they came from to fight in their armies. But if you're a sort of second-generation, third-generation German living in the UK, you might consider yourself to be from a German family, but the government thinks that you're English. As an example here, Frederick Lunkenheimer, who was a baker, and he actually says in his evidence that his family's bakery has been targeted by anti-German sentiments, and his family have been publicly insulted, and so he doesn't feel on conscientious grounds that he can then go and fight alongside these people and fight against people who could be, in all possibility, one of his relatives. Slightly different on the aliens angle is the subject of Russians living in the UK. When Russia withdrew from the war in 1917, Russian nationals were eligible to fight in the British Army. So you've got this separate Russian subjects appeal form and they would have to apply the same as everyone else. What's an interesting link is if you can't find what happened to these people, if you can't find a service record, if they naturalised after the war, one of the questions that the Home Office asked was, what did you do? So I found the naturalisation case paper for Adolf Feitelson here in HO144-5500, and in his evidence, when they asked, what did you do in the war, he gives us the detail that he was called up but when he went to call up, he wasn't actually needed to go and serve. So he saw out the war, performing work of national importance by manufacturing gloves for the Royal Air Force and for munitions workers. That's just another example of how you would link these case papers to another record series and get that little bit of detail that you wouldn't find elsewhere. So to sort of conclude for this afternoon, just some key summary points about the project, about the collection. These are free digital images to download via our online catalogue discovery there would be no charge even if you're accessing them from home. They're either name searchable via the online search form through our online records page, select Army and Conscription, and you'll find the link there to the Middlesex Military Service Appeal Tribunal. But as Chris pointed out earlier, you can also search by grounds of appeal, occupation, town, place, that sort of stuff. They are mainly for men living or working in Middlesex. An application or appeal for exemption should not automatically mean or be seen that that person was unwilling to fight during the First World War, many of the applicants would go on to see service in one of the military forces. The information contained within the papers are not you know, restricted to just the applicant. They will reveal details about the family, about the wider community and even businesses in the local area. For other areas of the country, the records that survive are fragmented. Some will be very good, like Northampton, which have a whole series of case papers that do survive, which James McDermott has, has a published study on. Very, very interesting read on those records. And elsewhere around the country, even in today's local press, there's a story about record in Lee, about 4,000 case papers. But in other cases, it will just be the odd minute book or letter book. So our advice to researchers for other areas of the country is to try your local record office. We've found that details online can be a bit misguided at the moment on these records, so always try contacting the local record office to see if you can find any others. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>